everybody. Welcome to Geeky Dads Talk About Geeky Things. I'm JJ Johnson, and joining me tonight, welcoming back to the show, is Alan Brocken. Alan, what's going on, man? I am having the time of my life. I, I, I couldn't be having more fun than, I, like, I shouldn't be allowed to have this much fun. <laughs> All right, so tonight, Alan and I are going to be discussing a lot of things. But one of the first things that we're going to talk about is fantasy and fantasy set in a medieval type setting. Now, Alan, you pitched this idea to me, and I kind of love it because, you know, one of the things when we think about fantasy is fantasy has a habit. And yes, folks, we know there are exceptions to this rule. We'll talk about those exceptions a minute but fantasy has a habit of being set in sort of a, a middle ages or medieval type setting so what was your thought process on you know why you wanted to talk about this tonight specifically and what sparked it well so i think there's a couple things that sparked it uh one of them is just well does it have to be that way you know like as, as a geeky person you like to see things that are a little different, maybe, you know, expand your horizons, find something that, that could be special or unique. But then actually what really hooked me was there was this whole thing in, on TikTok that I, that I picked up on what if uh, Lord of the Rings was in Appalachia? <laughs> <laughs> and then they had, you know, you know, Gimli talking with a, a sort of a hillbilly draw and and they went on uh, just all this stuff it was it was hilarious i can't can't really describe it on the radio you had to kind of see the video but it really i mean it's kind of like yeah why why is the fantasy we see also written written in a way that it's very much sort of western european mid-ages stuff right and and the myths and legends related to that you know um I, I have a couple of theories. You know, for a long time, science fiction, especially in the, the 70s, uh, there was this idea, and I think a lot of it had to do with Dune, that sometimes a lot of science fiction was set on, like, a desert planet. And, and maybe <laughs> do with, you know, Star Wars. When it first starts out, it's on a desert planet. Dune's on a desert planet. When you think of, like, the Mad Max movies and stuff like that, it's sort of in these desert wastelands and things like that. I don't think that's necessarily stuck around as much, uh, you know, even Planet of the Apes and things like that. But uh, for fantasy, I think a lot of it is just the fact of, well, that's what was there at the beginning. And that's what we're going to continue to do because it was safe and it worked. So I think of things like, obviously, Tolkien, you know, you have that sort of medieval type, Middle Ages feel not necessarily saying it's set in the medieval. Uh, I think a lot of the fairy, a lot of these stories come out of the fairy tales and things like that. And of course, that's about the time that they were being written. But then you have things like Conan the Barbarian, D and D games, and a lot of those have kind of, have kind of set the tone of fantasy being set in this type of medieval environment. That's my theory. I think it's just something that people are comfortable with, or. It's where their minds automatically go sometimes when you say the word fantasy, especially those that don't read a lot of fantasy. But uh, what do you think? What do you think are the some of the reasons that this occurs? Well, I think there's definitely a, a, a safety in the familiarity, 
right? Like if you're if you're net, writing some net new fantasy, you're putting something out. If you're a movie studio and you build your fantasy thing around a European setting, people get that, you know. People kind of got what Willow was, for example, because it kind of looked like what people might have thought Lord of the Rings ought to look like and that kind of thing. So I think that's part of it. But I also feel like there's a lot of, as a writer, whether you're a screenwriter or a book writer, you kind of write what you know at a certain level. Yes, you may have your imagination that's out there somewhere and you may be completely inventing something, you know, there's definitely sci-fi that's complete invention. But I kind of feel like if you think about, you know, sort of the heavy hitters in fantasy is, at least when I was growing up, it was C.S. Lewis and it was Tolkien. And between those two, both of them had come from this sort of European background. I'm sure as a kid, they had school trips to castles and stuff. And there were museums with armor and all that stuff around all the time. And so it was a built into the, you know, their subconsciouses, the iconography or the thing to do. And then they pulled a ton from sort of local myths and legends. And, you know, when, like, when you think of, of C.S. Lewis's, you know, bad guys, witches, etc., all, all of that stuff was taken from sort of more local myth and legend. And so I think that's really a lot of it was they, they kind of wrote what they knew, but then expanded on it. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's true. Cause like you, you had, Lord of the Rings, and you had uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And then, you know, you also had over here to the side, you know, the Conan the Barbarian. And then you move into, like, the 70s and 80s and 90s. And when you look at some of the biggest fantasy during that time, um, you had Terry Brooks come out with the Shannara Chronicles. And that's more... You've learned later it's sort of a post-apocalyptic Earth, but you don't know that when you mm-hmm. when the series comes out. And then you had, you know, one of the biggest series was the Bulgarian by David Eddings. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a huge hit in the uh, early '80s, and so were the sword novels by Fred Saberhagen. And then, of course, you get the the Terry Goodkinds and the Robert Jordans, and who are produced and then George R. R. Martin, who started writing these big epic fantasy series in like, you know, the mid to late 90s. And so I think I think a lot of that is familiarity, like you were saying. But there have been some who have sort of challenged that, uh, those tropes, and, and have flipped it up on Syed's head. And I think of things like, you know, Harry Potter, obviously, is fantasy. You know, at the Wizarding School, you got... Um, obviously Lovecraft, whether you love him, hate him, whatever, he was sort of writing some fantasy elements, but his were real world sort of dealing with, uh, almost like a stranger things type fantasy. And then of course you got Neil Gaiman, uh, with American gods and some of that stuff. Um, then Jim Butcher putting out the Dresden files. And so obviously there are some fantasy out there that have sort of challenged the mold. And before we move into the uh, the meat of our discussion tonight, what are some of your favorite fantasy stories out there that have kind of broken that traditional mold of a medieval and kind of moved out of, of that and tried to do something different? Well, I think um, one that comes to mind, and I got to make sure I'm, I'm doing the, I just read this book, but um I got to make sure that I got the title right. Hold on just a second. I'm, I'm grabbing this real quick. Um, 
But a, a friend of mine wrote a book that was fantasy in this whole other world, and it was a really neat mashup, but it was definitely different. They ended up having um, ostriches that they were writing, which I had not seen fantasy where ostriches were the the primary uh, mode of transportation. The only place I've seen ostriches ever ridden is the Swiss Family Rock. So that yeah, is that. It's, a Dim Hope by Katie Clark. She just she recently put this out, and and um, I, I love this story because it's got this kind of fantasy, you know. There there are these stones of power and that sort of stuff, but the setting is just different. It's it 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 has that vibe of sort of magic and that kind of thing. But like I said, they're they're writing ostriches. They've got you know uh, lots of other things they run into. I don't want to kind of ruin the plot, but just to say that was one. The big one I remember from being a kid, though, that wasn't, you know, Tolkien and, and Lewis was the Dragon Riders of Pern. I remember that from back in the day. Uh, another one, though, that was mostly, you know, dragons and, and that kind of stuff. So so I haven't seen a lot of alternate fantasy other than some of the titles you mentioned, right? Like American Gods is a good example of of something. But, but still, that setting is just like the real world with some fantasy added, right? In the end, I feel like there was a lot of writing from what he knew at a certain level with a new thing added onto it. And I think that's the, the challenge for writers is, are you starting with a completely blank slate, right? A completely blank, you know, no palette thing. You got to just make it all up from scratch. I think that's just hard. And so it's a lot easier to start with some kind of basis to work from. Yeah, and one of the things I like about Anne McCaffrey is, uh, her fantasy had a lot of sci-fi elements into it. It's almost mm -hmm. fiction, sort of like Star Wars is a different type of fantasy set in space. Um, I would say hers is around the same thing. Um, so yeah, I think I think that that is an excellent example. I have not read the Dragon Riders ever. I I was in the it was the nineties. Uh, oh yeah, high, high school when I read it. So, but. It's absolutely up there in, in, in some of my top favorite stories that I've ever read. So I agree with that. Now, let's kind of move on because there are other types of fantasy. Obviously, there's there's flintlock fantasy, which is set in sort of a colonial revolutionary war type uh, setting in a way. It doesn't necessarily have to be American Revolution, but some of those type of elements. But, you know, when you start thinking of moving on and you start thinking of the, of the punk novels, you know, you got, you got steampunk and then you got diesel punk and then you got, um, what cyberpunk. I'm probably missing like five other punks, but <laughs> there are a lot of punks. Yeah. There, there are a lot of punk rockers out there. Um, I actually used to be a punk rocker, you know, skateboard and all that stuff. That so. does not surprise me at all. JJ. Uh, not surprised at all. I was in a punk rock band called Somebody's Brother. Actually. Nice. I got to put that in the J.J. Johnson trivia bucket now. Yeah, yeah. I, I was a skater and I was uh, in a punk rock band. Uh, I was the, uh, they called me the throat. They didn't call me the lead singer. I was the throat. Nice. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, so you have a new novel coming out, and this is a part of your series. And it's a middle grade. <laughs> I want to kind of move into talking about your new book that's coming up and the, what your series and some of the things that you're doing to kind of challenge these tropes and sort of 
you know, was this intentional? Was it unintentional? Or did you just realize, hey, this is what I have going on? But you've kind of referred to this as prairie punk. And this is such a unique concept and idea because it's not something that a lot of people that I know of are even doing other than you. So let's kind of dive into this a little bit. First of all, tell us what Prairie Punk is, and then we'll sort of move into talking about your books a little more. So the simplest way to describe Prairie Punk is Prairie Punk is like Little House on the Prairie, but fantastic. That's the best way to think about it. Nice. Um, and so, so in my iteration or way of thinking about it was um, really... I wanted to write a different fantasy novel period. Like I wanted my world to be a little different. I didn't want to use elves and orcs and ogres and all that stuff that had, had been sort of the standard tropes at the same time. I did want it to be grounded in a reality that was relatable and understandable to people. Like something that I didn't have to build the entire world from scratch. I could use kind of what I knew and what they might know as the basis. So I kind of picked a time period as, say, 18, mid-1800s U.S. So you would have things like um, Ten Cups and um, Steel Windmills. But um, I made a rule in my Prairie Punk, there's no gunpowder. Um, and that was really intentional because once you have gunpowder, you lose out on the, effect, the efficacy of you know, swords and armor and stuff like that. And I like the idea of swords and armor. So, so it's kind of like, imagine the U S countryside in the mid 1800s on the frontier, but without, you know, um, uh, without gunpowder. Um, and so that's kind of the basis for it. And then, you know, the, the sort of magical elements in this are all very sort of spiritual things. They're, they're kind of, um, you know, we've got some blessed pets, pet, some animals that do do special things. Um, and then because it's a Christian allegory, um, there's the armor of God. And so they've got, you know, the fiery sword of the spirit kid running around with the sword on fire and things like that. And so anyway, you know, from a, a geeky worldview building perspective, I wanted this thing that was like Little House on the Prairie as far as, you know, you've got log cabins and you've got this expansive prairie everywhere. But in the end, had some fantastic elements, like I said, like the Sword of the Spirit. Okay, so let's let's kind of transition into to, to your stories, and uh, and then we'll talk about more of the market you're sort of really targeting with this. Um, because first of all, I think I think what you're doing, and one of the questions I want to, and I don't want to give a ton of spoilers away, so. Uh, I'm going to keep this as spoiler free as I can, but I'm going to ask questions that I probably already know the answer to. Sure. But uh, first of all, let's go through what the name of the book, the books in your series, and then let's kind of dive into a spoiler free plot discussion. And then we'll talk more about the, the specific fantasy elements and how those fit into your story in case, in, in case people are uh, you know, curious. So tell us a little bit about, the four books in your series and kind of a loose based plot of maybe sure. books. So, so the series is middle grade, right? So it, because it's middle grade, of course, the, the parents have to disappear under mysterious circumstances. Otherwise it's not a middle grade story, right? Like, of course. So, so in book one, it's called light of mine. It's, it's actually based around the, the like 
Christian Sunday school song, This Little Light of Mine. Um, and that, that song plays a key role in the whole thing. Um, but it's three kids with their parents living on the prairie and then the parents disappear. Um, and so then the, the kids now have to get up and they're on the, um, the just challenging adventure to make breakfast. Because on the prairie, that's really hard. And so, so in the first book, there's a lot of problem solving and sort of puzzling out things. I mean, in the end, the kids, are, you know, the people that were supposed to help the kids don't show up. And that's kind of the dark, mysterious back end of the plot is, you know, people that are supposed to help them don't show up. So they finally go to church to get some help. And there's some, you know, people there that uh, they didn't expect. And now all of a sudden the kids are forced to figure out, um, you know, who do they trust? What's the right way to go? And so it's this kind of story of them, them working their way through this mystery. And so that's kind of the first book. There's, of course, a climactic battle at the end that I'm going to, you know, um, not tell you about because that'll ruin it. But just to say everything in my stories has a price to it. Um, you know, a contemporary to this from that storytelling perspective would be maybe like uh, the Wingfeather saga and the fact that none of those books end, end nicely. There's already always horrible stuff at the end. Um, that's one of the things I get either comments or or complaints about the, my endings because it's like you got to go to the next book. Um, <laughs> actually, I got to tell you my favorite my favorite thing I heard recently. I got I got a comment. Yeah, that ending was so amazing. We got to read the next book. Well played, Alan Brocken. Well played. You know. Um, so then the next book, Still Small Voice, is really about the kids feeling like they need to go save their parents, but then their uncle shows up and says, "No, I'm taking you to Grandma's house." And so it's this conflict with their uncle as they travel across the prairie going to grandma's house when they should be going to save their parents. Um, they run into the, the bad guys and the evil menagerie. So there's like an evil circus. And that's something from a, a, you know, we were talking about prairie punk. I really did a lot of research on what would have an 1800s-ish, like, you know, mid to late 1800s-ish uh, circus look like. I actually went to the circus museum in... Um, uh, in Florida, like it, I think it's Sarasota is where it is, but, um, you know, did, did a lot of research. I actually wanted to find a bunch of, you know, cause there's like, a, there's a bear in my circus and there's wolves and various things you would have seen there. But anyway, um, kids get through that, but their uncle has to sacrifice himself and that's sorry for the spoiler to save them and they make it away. Um, then in book four, Three, Fear No Evil, the kids get separated from each other. There's a there's a big fight and they get separated. And now they're lost and alone in a valley of darkness. And so in this one, we meet some of the real solid fantasy things in this. I created a couple of races, um, one of them called the Bjornborn. And so they're little humanoid type creatures that live symbiotically with bears. Very different kind of thing. Um, and then I have the Iron Priestesses, which are actually probably my so far been like the favorite weird thing I've created. People really like them because uh, they're made out of, they're made out of metal. Um, and so they're literally like cast iron women. Um, so that was pretty cool. Kids run into these various thing, people and, and the giants. There's some giants, not like um, fee fi fo fum type, you know, 30 feet tall giants. They're like 12 foot tall, but they're giants to the kids, obviously. Um, so in that story, then, uh, they they're separated. They got to find each other, and I am going to spoil this because it because it makes the next book make more sense. Um, they save mom, 
at, at the end of that story. Um, and so then we go on to Armor of God. They've got to go find the Armor of God. So um, uh, before their dad does, because their dad has turned to the back, dark side, so to speak. Um, and uh, they got to go find it before he does. That's that's where book four. And then at, at the end of book four is a climactic conclusion that wasn't how I meant to write the story in the first place. So that's all complicated. But anyway, that, that's the first four books in the series. Nice, nice. And, you know, one of the things I like about this is you're borrowing so many different you're not just doing like little house on the prairie um with fantasy i mean book two when you're starting out and they're leaving to go you know with their uncle and they're taking this trip i mean it's almost like you're starting out and the first thing i'm thinking is oh my gosh this is the oregon trail i mean this is going to be bad and so <laughs> it's totally oregon trail it's totally that and, you know, because everybody knows that, you know, back then you didn't journey, you know, far like that, unless you were taking like a train or something like that. But you didn't like just journey. Uh, I mean, because of things like, you know, you think back like the Oregon Trail and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm in Oklahoma. Yeah, we had the, the illegal land run here. But, you know, at the same time, it's it, you know, it, that type of lifestyle it was dangerous. And so it's not just the fact that you're introducing conflict, you know, through the magical elements that they, they face. You're dealing with conflict of a real life conflict that actually happened on top of that. Kids, it was tough to be a kid during this time. And then to throw these magical elements on top of it makes for incredible conflict. So like you said, waking up and trying to figure out how to make breakfast in a society where, you know, the same person has done the breakfast all the time and they know the rhythm, they know the methods and things like that. It's not like, you know, today where kids can go in and just pop a pop tart in, you know? <laughs> so there's no pop tarts on the prairie. <laughs> no, no, not. And, and that's the thing. I mean, it's, you're, you're dealing with the regular type of conflict that, that most people don't realize that, that they dealt with here. Now, uh, circus creeped me out, by the way. Yeah, same. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I've watched The Greatest Showman and things like that. And, uh, you know, I've watched both versions, the 50s version and the new version. But, um, you know, one of the things I think about when I found out you were taking these, take, going to a circus, I was just like, oh, Alan, uh, you mean is this a middle grade or is this R.L. Stein, you know, writing this? And um, there's a lot of interesting things that happen throughout the courses of your books. And so let's talk a little bit about the characters real quick and specifically, you know, what's unique about the characters. And let's talk about some of the magical uh, or the fantasy. I don't want to say magic because some people might not like that. You know, when you have fantasy, you have magic. That's just basically yeah. how. So let's talk about some of the, characters and some of the fantasy elements that they uh that they you know kind of come in contact with i guess is a good way to say it yeah so so part of what i was trying to do was um you know I, the, my audience is is sort of this you know sort of traditional christian family audience that that's may, maybe got got a little bit of leeway in 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 what they're wanting to read and that sort of stuff so as long as it's sort of explainable and 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 so one of the things i tried to do was 
is this idea I'm doing with these things similar to something you might find in the Bible. So you talked about the magic, like the little boy Aiden has this sword that's the sword of the spirit. It catches on fire and it it's used to destroy evil objects, right? Objects corrupted by the darkness. That's what it does. It, it has a specific thing it can do. Um, uh, the, the older daughter, uh, Lauren, um, she's got a spear and it basically... The way I've I've created the allegory in this, the fantasy around it is that the um, uh, the darkness it's sort of like smoke, but it can corrupt that can get in the water. There's lots of ways for the darkness to kind of seep in and take you out and and turn you to its side, so to speak. That's kind of an underlying threat throughout the book, and not just people, animals, plants. There's corrupted plants everywhere that have different properties once they're corrupted. Like there's a point where they run into some, and one of the things is if they're corrupted by the darkness, they get bigger. And so there's these giant raspberries that become bombs later. <laughs> um, really cool stuff that, that goes on with this. But I had a lot of fun with taking the things that I grew up around. Like I used to have to pick raspberries as a kid. Um, and okay, so what would happen if the darkness got into that, right? Um, and so we've got these salamanders that live underneath the Iron Mountain. And, and when the darkness takes them over, they become like super acidic and you, you can burn your skin if you touch them. So I did a bunch of stuff like that on the darkness side of it. And then on the light side, the kids have, you know, have to kind of listen for the still small voice. That's, you know, maybe something a little supernatural about it. Um, and then they can obviously activate their weapons. So like Lauren's spear, when she throws it, somebody knocks the darkness out of them. Um, and then Ethan has a shield that that nothing that's affected by the darkness can get inside a globe of light around the shield uh, to the point of it. If you're completely corrupted with the darkness, uh, you vaporize. You go poof, as he says. OK, so. Um, do you want to talk about it? Tell people who the characters are specifically named after. Yeah, so the kids are named after my kids. The kids in the story, they're the and, and they're about the ages my kids were when I wrote the first book. So, you know, the, the short story is I was traveling for work all the time and I get to the end of the day and call home. And when I'm trying to talk to my kids, I had nothing. They go, Hey daddy, how how was your day? But I just didn't have, have any words. I, I had nothing to say. Um and so I was, you know, it just, they didn't want to hear about RSA 2048 bit encryption. It just, it wasn't going to be a conversation to have. <laughs> um, and so one day, one of them was telling me this story about their, their stuffed animal. I don't know if it was Sparkle Frog, their stuffed frog or the Meow Meow, but one of them was telling me a story about their stuffed animal. And so I just said, well, and then what happened? <laughs> and they told me some more and I kept going and then what happened? Um, and so that, that was a conversation I had with my kid. And then about two days later, I started pulling it. And then what happened? They said, no, daddy, you tell me what happened. <laughs> and so I stuck again. So I started writing this story kind of in the morning before I went to work, before I'd run out of words and would read them stuff. And at first it was kind of not so good, but eventually it got, it got better. Um, and then, you know, it, it was a nine year journey to get it to where we're, where light of mine as published is the book that it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that story. Uh, I've heard it before and I want others to kind of hear that. Uh, 
it's similar to my story uh, when I, you know, published my book, my my middle grade book. So I think I think the the way stories are birthed sometimes and and come about uh, usually is a reflection of how powerful they really are. Some of the and and, and when I say powerful, I mean how much they impact readers. I know I know books that are, have impacted me, and those books have sold probably just a couple thousand copies, and that's it. And I, what what amazes me is how the author came up with the story. Your story is is one of those. It's one of those books I plan on having my kids read. My oldest turns ten actually tomorrow. <laughs> when cool. So I plan on let, you know having him read it because because yours is more. I, you know, where I'm writing for the eight, nine-year-olds and, and the younger middle grade, yours is, I don't want to say older middle grade. But, but it is. It totally it, is. Yeah. So let's talk about um, about your market specifically and specifically uh, marketing this to the homeschool market, how you have found some success there. So why don't we talk yeah. about well, so, I mean, th this is a very, like, there's a Christian underpinning to the whole thing, right? Like, it's it's an allegory, and it's very explicit in in what it's teaching in a given book about whatever, right? Like, each, each book has a topic that goes back to the verse that's tied to the title, right? Um, and so, because that's very specific, it's not, it's not a general market thing that just everybody's going to want for their kid. I mean, it'd be nice if it was, but that's just not, not the way it is. Like, it was written you know, for a pretty specific audience. Um, and so from that perspective, though, I've, I've had it reviewed pretty extensively by a group known as the Homeschool Review Crew. Um, there, It's a bunch of homeschool moms that, you know, you, you submit your product for evaluation and they come and tell people what they think. And they love it. They like the fact that it's a mis mix of fantastic stories, um, you know, sort of traditional Christian values, and just quirky stuff that their kids like. So one of the things you, we talked about breakfast being hard, right? And one of the things I, I do is I, there's this whole segment of this story about making oatmeal, which, you know, if you've got to get a Dutch oven out and cook it right and all that, it's actually kind of hard to do, even on, you know, even though oatmeal seems pretty simple. Well, in the story, the five-year-old Ethan calls it oatmeal. Well, I get feedback from these homeschool parents that they're, they're all calling it oatmeal now, right? So it's one of those things where I kind of hit the niche of what they are. And I also provide unit studies with that. So that's a, that's a thing where you can read like a chapter a day and there's discussion questions that go with that chapter. There's um, uh, puzzles, there's vocabulary. And that's why when you said 10, that that's the general feedback I'm getting is like, it's, if you're going to read it to your whole family, you can go younger but if you're going to have kids read it directly, because I've got, you know, words like mercenary are, are in the vocabulary list. Um, it's just for kids with like a more advanced reading level. So I think that that's fair. Um, but I think, you know, from from the homeschool market all up, the homeschoolers I've, I've had evaluated and then just purchased it. Like I, I go to homeschool conventions and people buy it. So I think I think it's well received as a concept and what it what it is from a content perspective for that audience. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think you know, you know, where I'm writing sort of the uh, the pulp for reluctant readers or you know readers, you're writing something that, uh, has um, 
has some awesome, awesome uh, educational opportunities with the homeschool guides that you're offering. So if you're a homeschool parent, I highly encourage you to check out I, Alan's work. And we're going to leave a lot of links in the show notes. Um, Alan, let's talk a little bit about because you're not just writing books for kids and you're not just writing this prairie punk, uh, but you're also sort of ministering the dads in many ways. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, before we get off of here, let's talk about the dad word, and what's going on there, what you have happening over there. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I mentioned earlier, I just have this challenge with, I, I had a challenge as a father connecting with my family. And eventually I figured out, you know, this story thing was my thing. But I've talked to a lot of dads that there's two things, really. A lot of dads are very unsure about the world today. And I totally get that. There's good reason to be unsure about the world today. Um, and, you know, but the reality of it is this is not the first time the world has been unsure in America. <laughs> um, in the past, there's been lots of that. It's actually pretty cyclical in America. Well, my, my, I call him my bonus dad, but basically my mom remarried, um, uh, after my, my, my father passed away, he was, he's a historian. Like he used to teach history and he's got all this information. So he's been sending me, you know, famous quotes, uh, from people from tough times, and so what I've been doing is putting that together um, in a podcast of here's kind of something inspirational, something to think about, but also just a time to kind of catch your breath and transition from, you know, sort of work mind to home mind. So I got, you know, the, the uh, inspirational posts. I talk a little bit about, you know, some kids that you might want to inspire your own kids to be like. And then, of course, there's a couple dad jokes every day as well, because, you know, I'm kind of known for the dad joke of the day. All right. Excellent. I invite you guys to go and check that out. Where can they get uh, tuned into that podcast and everything? Is that directly on your website? Yeah. If you go to, if you just look up at daily dad word on any social media, you'll find, find it there. But my website, the website for that is daily slash daily dad word. All right. All right. And I highly recommend everybody go check that out. It's a quick, little bit of encouragement every single day. I read it daily. It pops up and on Instagram and uh, Alan's all over the place and TikTok primarily. I would highly, highly, highly recommend you go follow him on, on TikTok. I'll leave sh uh, link in the show notes for all that. Alan, as always, man, it is always great talking to you. I appreciate Wait. you coming yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about Prairie Punk. And, you know, and the funny thing, JJ, is once I put out my first Prairie Punk book, do you know what happened? What's that? The Prairie Dress came into style. So I'm, I'm, I'm hitting the market at just the right time. Hey, that is true. That, I mean, I've noticed that. Like, you know, for those that don't know me, I, uh, I do a lot of backyard gardening at uh, the Dad Who Gardens on Instagram. And one of the things I've noticed about a lot of people is that the prairie sort of homesteading prairie dress is coming back big time. So I might be on to something, man. Yeah, no, I I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to use, how I'm going to do some kind of prairie dress girl with a spear thing for the launch of my, my next book here in November, uh, just to, I got to see if I can figure that out because I think it'd be really cool because it'd be, you know, the the Lauren collection from whatever with, with her, her uh, glowing spear, right? That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is the exact date that that book launches? 
So on November 4th, I'm going to be ha- or yeah, November November 4th is the day it goes on sale. Like you can buy it in stores. Uh, on the 3rd, on the night of the 3rd, that's a Thursday night, uh, I'm going to do um, Towers of Light Fantastic Kingdom. So think like Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom, but in my world. Um, and I'm going to be talking about all kinds of crazy stuff that happens to the animals there. Uh, we're going to learn about the no-good egg-stealing prairie dogs and a bunch of other animal stuff. So it'll be a pretty fun show. Maybe have a little super fight along the way uh, and prizes worth having. So that'll be November 3rd. Nice, nice. And this episode is on November 1st. So for those of you listening, uh, get ready for that to come out because it will be coming out that Friday, thir- uh, November 1st. Am I got the right dates? That'd be Thursday, November 3rd, yeah. right? All right. So, all right, Alan, it's been great having you on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Geeky Dads. Talk about geeky things. That's a wrap.